Morning, church. It's good to be here with you today in the house of the Lord. Uh, yesterday, uh, we, I had the opportunity to uh, uh, do our first uh, wedding ceremony uh, in our tenure here at Calvary Monument. Uh, it was very fun, uh, enjoyable, and it's always wonderful to see the work of the Lord in the lives of two people that he's uh, brought together. And so we celebrated uh, Clark and Anna's uh, wedding yesterday, and, and it was a great day of joyous celebration in the work of the Lord. Also, I'm very excited uh, for the first time uh, to be able to participate and to be here for this year's missions conference, which is coming up. It's, it's right around the corner. I've never really experienced a missions conference in this regards before, so I'm looking forward to all of the different aspects and avenues and meeting all the different people that will come and, uh, and hearing many of the stories uh, from the mission field. It'll be a fabulous time of celebration, I believe, uh, as we fellowship together during that week, and I'm looking forward to it. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to take a job. It was summer, and my parents thought that a good habit for me to get into once I reached a certain age was to be getting a job over the summer so that I wouldn't be sitting around the house and not doing anything, just twiddling my thumbs all day. And so there was a man in our church who owned his own construction uh, kind of handyman company. And so I went and I, I sat down with him and, and he interviewed me. He knew me from the church. It wasn't a very difficult interview. He was going to give me the job. I think the interview was just uh, determining exactly where I might fit in the handyman business because I myself am not very handy. And so <laughs> as we got to talking and, uh, and deciding, he, he offered me a position. And one of my first jobs was to go out with him and to hang drywall. Well, I found out very quick I wasn't very good at hanging drywall. And, uh, and so then he thought, well, if he can't hang drywall, uh, maybe uh, he could help me with some of the electrical work in the building that I'm, I'm doing electrical work for. And so I went with him and I helped him do that. And he came to find out I wasn't very good at doing that either. Uh, it turned out that I got to do all of these jobs throughout the summer and, and I got to work. But the things that I was best at in his mind were painting fence digging post holes, and weed whacking. And and ironically enough, all three of those things he would only allow me to do at his house. (laughs) So that summer, while I was employed for him and his business, I painted his fence, I um, uh, would uh, weed whack his garden, and I dug post holes for him. And, and he was an older guy in our congregation. And I just remember, I so desperately wanted to please him. You know, it was a, he, he was such a, a well-respected member of our community. Everybody loved him, and I just wanted him to be happy with the work that he asked me to do. And so one day, he had left and gone off for a job, and he asked me to weed whack around the cornfield that he had in his house. And I thought, well, that's fine. I could do that. And so I got the weed whacker out, and I got going. And I got all the way around that cornfield, and it was probably only about lunchtime. And I thought, well, I got four more hours of work to do. So I'm going to have lunch. I had lunch. And, uh, and then I thought, well, I'm just going to go weed whack every weed I can find around the property here. Because I, I just wanted to do all this work to make him happy and to please him. And so I went and I weed whacked. And I weed whacked everything. And I remember, I, yeah, you're laughing because you know where this is going. <laughs> I got into a place with the weed whacker where I was, I was man, this, these weeds are 
hard to chop down. And I remember going, and I was going through string like crazy. And, and when I would chop them, they would leave little strands at the top. And so I left. I cleaned up the weed whacker and headed home for the day. And I came back the next day, and, and um, my boss, he was sitting there waiting for me. And he said, you know, uh, he said, I asked, he called his wife mom. He said, I asked mom last night if she had a chance to go out back and cut the fresh asparagus for dinner. <laughs> and, uh, and when she got out there, unfortunately, um, I had mowed it all down uh, <laughs> with the weed whacker. So uh, he did not get his asparagus uh, that summer, unfortunately. But you know, so often in life, we, we want to work so hard to please someone. And, and to make them happy with us. And you know, I think about there's often there's satisfaction at the end of a job that's well done. You know, there's this verse. Uh, this verse has been um, on my wife's heart for a number of months now. And she shared it with me. And somebody from our congregation gave me something just last Sunday. And it had this very ver- verse on it. And I thought, we need to hear this together. Because we've been talking through the book of John We're in John chapter 6, and we're talking about how Jesus is more than enough. How he's able to satisfy us. And there's this verse in Psalm chapter 19, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. So I I asked the question to you this morning, uh, before we go into our text, as you sit here today... Are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? And, and, and I don't mean in a, in a, in a sense that you're, you're content and you've become complacent. Not in your behavior. But I mean, are you satisfied in the love of the Lord? Are you able to sit here today and to rest in that? That Psalm chapter 90 verse 14 is that true satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days as we go into John chapter 6 today uh, we are going to answer perhaps what might be one of the most important questions that you might ever ask in all of your life and it actually comes out in our text this morning What must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? As you contemplate those questions, are we satisfied? And what must we do to be doing the work of God? And as you turn to John chapter 6, might we take a moment this morning to pray together. Father God, as we open up your word this morning again, we know that it is powerful and effective to change our lives. Lord, if we sit here today and we have unrest, we're unsettled, we're not satisfied. Father, I pray that through our time in your word today, you might draw us to a place where we can rest in you and be satisfied in you and we can rejoice. Lord, as we contemplate the question, what must we do to be doing your works? It's such an enormous question that should guide the behavior and the orientation of our lives. I pray that your word this morning would unfold the answer clearly before us. That we might leave here changed. A better able to love each other. And better able to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. When they found him on the other side of the sea, 
They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see you and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So as we open uh, this portion of John chapter 6, it's a very long chapter, 71 verses. Uh, we're nearing halfway through the chapter. We're three messages in. And, and there's this idea, Jesus, if you remember, uh, he had withdrawn after feeding the, the 5,000. And then he had crossed over the sea. And now he's reunited with that group of people who had witnessed him uh, feed them, the 5,000. And they're essentially wondering, why did you leave? Where did you go? And how did you get here? How did you get here across the sea? And I thought, could you imagine if Jesus would have answered them literally? If he would have answered that question that they asked literally? Well, guys, let me tell you. Um, I went away, and then I sent the disciples out, and, uh, and I knew they were going into a storm. And so while they were out in the water, I thought I'd just go ahead and walk out on the water to them in the middle of the sea and, uh, and while I was doing that, I calmed the storm, and then I jumped in the boat, and the boat ended up on the shore, and that's how I got here. I mean, could you imagine if he would have said that to them, how they would have responded, if they would have even believed him? Maybe some would have, maybe some wouldn't have, I'm not sure. But they had called him prophet. If you remember, at the end of that great miracle, they referred to Jesus as prophet, and now, in this text, they're calling him rabbi. Still, he is not the Christ in the eyes of the people. And still to this point, the reason that the people were seeking Jesus had more to do with his physical provisions for them than his identity and who he was. And so there's a question that I have as we have been spending a lot of time in the book of John. We've seen this pattern over and over and over again. Jesus continues to display these miracles. He continues to show these signs and wonders. And the people continue to misinterpret and misapply them. And so this question might hit us. Why did Jesus continue to perform signs and wonders? Knowing that the people would continue to misapply and misinterpret them. And, And it's important for us to know, friends, that Jesus' works, though they are For us, they are not always necessarily about us. And let me say that again. Jesus' works, 
though they are for us, though he did these things and he intended these things to be for the people, they're not always necessarily about us. There's something more that's going on here in the miracles that Jesus is doing and the signs and wonders that he's performing. There's a few different things. One, he's, he's displaying his fulfillment of God's promises to his people in doing this. It wasn't just about doing these signs and wonders to make himself look mighty and, and look big. I mean, that was part of it. And, and it was more than just being able to provide for the physical needs of the people and, and to make them be entertained. Maybe providing for their needs was part of it, but there's something more going on. He's, he's fulfilling prophecies and predictions that were made about him in the Old Testament. He's displaying his power over nature and his ability to multiply bread and fish, his ability to turn water into wine, his ability to walk on the seas. He's showing people that he's powerful over the world that he created and that he holds together. And you know, in this instance and so often throughout the ministry of Jesus, friends, the minds of the Galileans were firmly fixed on the things of this earth. And not on the person of Jesus. They were always looking for what they could gain or benefit from Jesus' ministry. Look at our text. Truly I say to you, in verse 26, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so this time they hadn't come because they were expecting more miraculous signs and wonders. Maybe they were, but they were coming because he had satisfied a physical need. And perhaps he would be able to feed them again they sought Jesus because when they were with him he displayed the ability to satisfy their physical needs and friends this is still true today let's take a moment to illustrate this a second if we were to go into our communities think about your own neighborhoods and let's say you were to put out some signs in your community. You were going to go all over your community and you were going to put some signs in the ground. And your signs were going to say, free steak and lobster dinner. Free steak and lobster dinner. Each person who attends receives a $100 bill. Okay, those are the signs you're putting out all over your communities, all over your yards. Free steak and lobster dinner. Each person who attends receives a $100 bill. How many people do you think would come? A lot, right? Think about your communities. They would be overwhelmed because physically you have a need that you're going to meet. In fact, many needs. You're going to give them some food, steak, lobster, some of their favorite food probably. And financially, you're going to help them out too and give them a $100 bill. That's pretty nice. Now think about this. On the other side, if you were to go around that same community and you were to put out signs that said, free classes about Jesus, and how you can experience the full and true life that he offers. That was the sign you were, same amount of signs, same locations, but the sign in this case said free classes on Jesus, and how you can experience the full and true life that he offers. What would the difference in attendance be? Astronomical, probably. And it, it's evidence, friends, it's, it's, it's indicative of the reality that we almost always go for the physical over the spiritual. And this is what was happening. This is what the people were doing. They were chasing Jesus because of physically what he was able to give them and not spiritually what he was able to provide them with food that was everlasting. And really, friends, there are only two types of food available for us in this world. 
And only one of the types is able to provide us with eternally satisfying nourishment. Look down at verse 27, the two types of food. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. There are two kinds of foods that Jesus mentions in this verse. The food that perishes and the food that endures for eternal life. And the food that perishes, friends, these are all the things that we can see. The food that perishes, it's the earthly crowns. It's the earthly empires. It's the positions of power and prestige. It's it's the food that we work so hard and labor so hard for here on earth and sometimes so faithfully. It's that wanting Mr. Riggett's at the end of the day to come home and say, what a great job you did. Even though you weed whacked my asparagus, (laughs) my cornfield looks beautiful. And we work so hard for these physical crowns that eventually perish and go away. The material things in life, they take work, friends. And this is a result of the curse from all the way back in the book of Genesis. Toil and labor come to define our days. But there is food that endures for eternal life. Food that sustains us, that can hold us, that can carry us. Food that endures. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2. This is a beautiful verse that relates directly to this passage. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. When I read that verse, now some of you can enjoy this thought. Everybody think of your favorite type of ice cream. All right, for me, it's green mint chocolate chip. Green, not white. I want the green mint chocolate chip. And the bigger the chips, the better. And I think if I would go to my freezer and I would take that green mint chocolate chip ice cream out, and this is a bad habit, don't do this, because sometimes I just take the whole container. I don't put it in a bowl. (laughs) And I go, and I sit on the couch, and I start eating my mint chocolate chip ice cream. And imagine I just kept dipping my spoon into that, and it never, ever went away. That'd be really bad. (laughs) That'd be really bad for me. But that that food was always there. Delicious, sustaining, able to hold us, able to carry us, able to help us endure. It's the kind of food that the Lord offers. This is the reality that Jesus is offering in both a physical and a spiritual sense, friends. As we sit here today, there's a life that we can live that will never be empty. When it's lived, sustained by Jesus. And friends, when we live that life, then, then we are able to follow the, the, the prohibition, the principle, the thought in Psalm 90. Satisfy me. Because the Lord's sustaining us. He's carrying us. And I love that Jesus uses the title, if you look back here in verse 27, He uses the title, Son of Man. Son of man. And it really denotes the transcendence of this gift. Jesus is with them. He's physically available to them. He's here. He has come down to earth. It's available to us because Jesus, through His Holy Spirit, friends, as we sit here today, through His Spirit, He is with us here today. Our food, 
what should sustain us in the great days and in the difficult days is the person and the work of Jesus. That should be what sustains us. And there's all kinds of other things that the world's going to offer us that could sustain us. But what should sustain us is the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus said, this is what, for on him, God the Father has set his seal. That he might fill and sustain us through his life and ministry. And the best part of this reality, friends, is that this is not a life that we have to work for, but a life that he offers freely. The people misunderstood Jesus, and immediately again they went to the works, the physical over the spiritual. Their question, the question that's coming in verses 28 and 29, is perhaps the most important question that we might ever ask. And the answer that Jesus gives is indeed the most significant and relevant answer that we could ever hear. Look down again at verses 28 and 29. Life's most important question and answer unraveled for us in this text today. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, a few months ago, I had an opportunity to sit down with one of my mentors. And we were reading the Bible together. And he asked me, we we came together, we hadn't opened up the Bible yet. And he asked me this question. And I have to be honest, I didn't have John 6 in mind. He said to me, he said, so what are the works of God? What must you do to be doing the works of God? And, and at that moment, I didn't have John 6 in mind. So where do you think my mind immediately went to when he asked that question? Well, I got to pray. Got to read the Bible. I got to go to church. I got to do all these things. And he just sat there, you know, like good mentors do. And they just smile and let you dig your own hole, you know, because they're going to fix your answer and get you right. And that's what he did. And he sat there and he said, you're going on the wrong direction. You're going in the wrong direction. And finally, he said, turn to John chapter 6. And we looked at this passage, and friends, it's so amazing. What work does God require of man? What must we do as we sit here today? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And look at the answer. The answer is incredibly simple. The work of God is believing in Jesus, the bread of life. That's the work of God, friends. It's not a process. It's not behavior modification, a book of daily exercises or practices that we must be performing, rituals we must be doing. Um, To be identified as someone who is doing the work of God, we simply must believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And friends, it concerns me because for some reason in the church today, we have made church so complicated. Can any of you relate to that? We have all of these marketing strategies and all of these um, ideas and thoughts about ways that we should grow a church and books upon books upon books are written. In fact, this is one of my favorite stories right now. My cousin sent it to me. There was a pastor who was looking for his next sermon series. Uh, and, And so what he decided to do, he had just finished his sermon series up, he decided that in order to figure out what his next sermon series would be, that he'd go on to Twitter. And on Twitter he said, hey, just finished up a sermon series, looking for ideas. Tweet me ideas for your next, for my next sermon series, and it could be my next series. Dot, dot, dot. And my cousin sent me a picture. Somebody tweeted him, uh, answered him, and said, hey, I have 66 great sermon ideas for you. 
and he took a picture of the table of contents of his Bible and said, pick one of these. (laughs) One of these sermon series would be great. There's 66. We make it so difficult, friends. We, We think that we have to dress it up, that we somehow have to make it look really, really good and somehow have to like... Uh, do some kind of work to make it relevant and applicable. But, but friends, it's the Spirit that does the work. It's God who uses His Word. We don't have to dress it up. We don't have to make it complicated. Christianity, friends, should not be complicated. Doing the works of God means that we must believe. The work of God is faith in Jesus Christ as the central object. It says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Romans 3, 28, we maintain that we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, I say all that, but I don't want us to get mixed up in what's known as easy believism. Because some people, friends, some people will say, well, if that's it, then we just believe and that's all. And we can, once we believe, then we can just do whatever we want. Is that what the pastor's saying? No. Let me make that amazingly clear to you today. That's not what the pastor is saying from the front. Believe and then just live however you want. That's, that's something that's infecting our churches all over America today. Just believe and then you can just behave however you deem. Accept whatever you want. Live whatever lifestyle you want to live in. And sometimes you even hear them say, well, Jesus would have, Jesus would have, and they misrepresent the person of Christ. That's not the way it works. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. But listen, friends, true faith is productive. True faith is productive. In other words, it works. And it works because God's grace is never given without effect and and this is something paul said in in first corinthians 15 10 he said i am what i am by the grace of god and his grace was not given to me without effect when god regenerates us when he gives us his holy spirit as a seal and down payment to our future inheritance the spirit works within us to produce his fruit there is obedience that follows And so, friends, we can't just sit here and say, well, if that's it, just believe, period. Then we can just live however we want. That's not how it works. There must be obedience that follows. The blood of Christ, His sacrifice, and substitutionary atonement for our sins. His propitiation, it's a big word that means the turning away of God's wrath. His Spirit uses these realities as motivators pressing us towards submission to His Lordship over our lives, specifically applied in our obedience, a life that produces the fruit of the Spirit. And so, friends, we can't sit here today and just say, just believe and then do whatever you want. That's not how it works. True faith, true belief, produces something of an eternal quality in our lives. It's the fruit of the Spirit actively at work, producing His fruit as we live in obedience to the Lord. So while we can say with great clarity, according to our text today, that the work of God is simply to believe in Jesus, we also must say with equal clarity, according to other Scriptures, that the gift of God's grace 
through the power of His Holy Spirit, should produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And so I like to think of it like this, friends. Why our faith justifies our works, our works also testify to our faith. Our works testify to our faith. So we can say that all that we're investing, all the labors and all the efforts that we put forth to please Jesus or to please others, they are vain, they are unprofitable, and they are dead if there is no true belief. And friends, it's important for us to understand as we sit here today that we are capable. Friends, this is important. We are capable of trying to please Jesus without truly knowing Jesus. We are capable of that. How hard are we striving? Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And and the question maybe is, are we attempting some days and some times of our lives to make our works justify our faith? I do all of these great things, Jesus. Look at all of the great things I'm doing for you. There were people that said that. There was a group of people who believed that they were doing many mighty works in Jesus' name. What, What did Jesus say to them? Away from me. I never knew you. You see, their works, through their works, they were trying to justify their faith. But then, friends, then there was a group who simply believed. And their faith produced it was active it produced something it produced works and these works were not obligatory but they were more opportunities and these people they live fully and they love deeply and jesus called them to enter and they did so friends we we must not confuse the work of god with the labor of our hands we must understand that the work of god is a transformation of the heart that is followed by a continual renewal of our minds that brings forth the production of spiritual fruit. In the people's minds, it was the work of Moses that provided them with manna in the wilderness. However, Jesus reminds them that it wasn't his work. Look down at verses 30 to 34. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we might see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from the heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. The Father's true bread. Let us not misattribute the work of God to the hands of man. God did it. God did it. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 15. Who provides the manna? It wasn't Moses. It was God who did it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread. I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. In verse 15, When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is bread that the Lord has given you to eat. I always thought, who was the first brave person to take a bite of that bread? Right? What is it? (laughs) What is it? Go ahead, take a bite. But isn't it amazing? God did it. God did it. And here we are years and years later, and Jesus is walking on earth, and they want to apply this to Moses. Our fathers, they gave us manna in the wilderness to eat. 
you know, one of the greatest offenses to the Father in the Old Testament was a group of people. We know about this group from the Tower of Babel, and they thought that with their hands, they could somehow build a monument that would reach to God in heaven in order that the whole world might marvel at the works of their hands above and before the work of God. And friends, that's what we have to be so careful to avoid in church and in our lives, in our ministries, in our daily walk, that we're not building something with our own hands that we're glorying in, but we're, we're looking to believe in the Lord and let Him produce through us that which He will in our Lives. Moses' bread was not sufficient because man does not live by bread alone. Right? Moses' bread could never fully satisfy. It would never fully be sufficient to the people because man doesn't live by that bread alone. Deuteronomy, he humbled you, let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now carry that word, word into Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then carry that into John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. So who is it that satisfies who is it that sustains? Who is it that's able to carry us, to, to fully keep us filled all the days of our lives? Friends, only Jesus. Only Jesus, the true, ever-sustaining, forever-satisfying bread from the Father. In verse 33, he said, For the bread of God is not what comes down from heaven. Notice he says, He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God has a person, friends. It's He. It's a personal pronoun. And isn't it interesting that the people's response is this. Give us this bread always. Give us this bread always. It's kind of like the woman's response. The woman at the well, very similar response. Sir, I'd like to have this water. Give us this bread always. Their answer is not, reveal to us the one who comes down from heaven and is able to give us life. Wouldn't that have been a better response? Jesus said, the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven. So wouldn't a better response have been revealed to us than the one who comes down and is able to provide us with this bread? But again, it just follows the context of this passage. They weren't truly inclined to know about the person of Jesus and who He really was. They just wanted physical satisfaction. And friends, at the end of the day, that leaves us empty. Because no matter what we're doing, we're always, we sit and we're satisfied for about 10 seconds, right? And then after about 10 seconds, what happens? The grass starts to grow again. And the yard doesn't look as good as it did when we finished mowing. And now we've got to get back out there again a few days later and mow again. We sit and we're satisfied. It never ends. But there's satisfaction, friends, that can be completely fulfilling, completely sustaining, and it's available for us. Because of Jesus' great love for his people, he answers both the questions that they asked. One that they should have asked and one that they did ask. He answers both of them. Look down at verse 35. This is, there's no ambiguity here, friends. This is so clear. The clarity is just amazing. It's like a mirror. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. Absolute clarity. I am the bread of life. Like on the water, when Jesus was trampling the sea, remember, uh, they asked, who are you? Who is this coming? And he said, it is I. Ego, a me. The same exact phrase here, friends. I am. I am. The one that walked on the water was I am. The one that's able to be the bread of life who sustains and provides for us and can fully satisfy us is I am. It is I who comes to you in the storm and has the power to calm both the storm and you. And it is I that am the bread of life that's able to sustain and satisfy you. And friends, next week we'll continue to explore and unpack this account. And there's more questions next week. I love John 6. All of John is amazing. But John 6 is just question after question after question. And there's, there's two huge questions next week that we're going to unpack. Almost as important as the questions we unpack or as important as the questions we unpack this week. One, why did Jesus come down from heaven? Why did he do it? And then two, what is the will of God for Jesus' life? What is the will of God for Jesus' life? We're going to answer both of those questions next week. And so as we come to the end of our text, as we often do, how should our lives look in light of these realities? And I would conclude today with the same verse that I started with. As you sit here today, friends, if I were to say, Psalm 90, verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Are you able to leave here today satisfied in what the Lord has done for you and how He's provided for you and how He's been at work in your life. And there's another real applicable way that we're going to apply this today. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And so what a better verse to celebrate communion and to remember Jesus' sacrifice under than the verse that we studied today in John 6.35. And so we'll prepare today to receive communion. Father, as we prepare to partake of communion today as a body of Christ, I pray that you would keep in front of us the all-sustaining, ever-fulfilling nature of your Son, Jesus, and how the sacrifice that he made on our behalf is something that is to be remembered, to be celebrated, to be honored, and to be thankful for all of our days. And Father, this is one Sunday every month. But let it be indicative to a lifestyle that's thankful for the great sacrifice that you've made for us. Amen.